Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to share with you um, the interview to come. This is a book that I really, really loved, um, and it's Nicole Staroselsky's The Undersea Network. It was published in 2015 by Duke University Press, and just run out and get a copy. Um, because it's a really, really amazing work on a number of levels. So the work takes us into the infrastructures of undersea cable networks. And what we find through this story is the story of undersea cable networks is a story of interconnectivity, of the importance of the materiality of what we think of as immaterial wireless or cloud networks. It's a story of the importance of infrastructure and the relations and the relationships between networks of infrastructure, infrastructure networks, and broader cultural, political, social histories and contexts within which the nodes and the transmission points and systems of these networks are located. So throughout the book, Nicole pays special attention to the ways that the infrastructures of digital media are importantly existing in a tension between strategies of insulation and strategies of interconnection. Um, So you're going to see that coming up throughout the book. What the book does, and you'll see only glimpses of that in the conversation to come, is it takes us into... Um, a way of experiencing transmission and stories of transmission, the way that things, information, bits, images, ideas flow through these networks, while also appreciating the nodes, right, the hubs, the places where the physicality of the uh, objects that make these networks possible, that make communication possible, are really growing up, are embedded, are, are being inhabited and inhabiting The book exists in important relation to another equally crucial part of the project, and this is the companion website that I've linked on the post that goes along with this conversation and that we talk about in the conversation. It's very, very important um, that as you're listening to us talk about this, you understand that the book and the website um, are really meant to be experienced together and are built in a way that facilitates that. And so definitely, um, as you're exploring the book, please do take a look at the website or you know, just take a look at the website even before you've had a chance to look at the book because it's a really fascinating model and example of 
the ways that digital humanities and digital media, digital scholarship can transform not just the way we understand stories, but the way we tell stories and learn about and contribute to the world around us. It's a fabulous project. It was just great fun talking with Nicole about it. And I really, really appreciate um, her time that she's given and also your time for listening to the interview and helping to make all this possible. So thank you as ever for listening, and I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. I'm here today to talk with Nicole Staroselsky about her new book, The Undersea Network. Welcome to New Books in STS, Nicole, and thanks for both writing an amazing book that I've been recommending all over the place and for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm looking forward. Great. Thanks for having me. So could you start us off by saying, um, as is traditional for the channel, just a little bit about what brought you to the field and specifically, how did you come to media studies as your field of inquiry? Right. Well, I started off um, in cinema studies and English when I did my undergrad degree at USC, University of Southern California. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And so someone gave me the advice to at least spend four years doing something that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I, I decided to major in film, um, became really captivated in uh, the, the implications of transition to digital media, digital cinema, um, interactive writing, and so on. Um, and then when I decided to go to grad school, which likewise was sort of a decision uh, not uh, meant to put me on a path towards a tenure-track job, but more as, a, well, I might as well spend the next five years doing something interesting, um, learning a lot more. Uh, I applied to the program at UC Santa Barbara and ended up there uh, in a highly interdisciplinary film and media studies department. Uh, I chose that program in part because the campus was really open to all kinds of uh, kind of engagements across disciplines, uh, and new forms of knowledge production. Uh, so while I was there, I was interacted with a lot of people who were doing environmental studies, who are involved in marine science. Uh, and I very quickly became interested in the ocean, uh, in part because every day when I took the bus in, you see this beautiful view of the ocean. And then there are all these people who are doing really cutting edge research on the ocean. So I conceptualized the project initially um, as a inquiry into media underwater. Uh, which could be anything, including kind of shark documentaries or underwater remote-operated vehicles. And I was really interested in, okay, so how do the different technologies, media technologies, um, technologies of knowledge production, how are they informed by or shaped by within this aquatic environment? Um, and so... When I went to my advisor, uh, Lisa Parks, with this idea, she said, that's great. Why don't you study undersea cables as a form of underwater media? <laughs> and I thought, wow, those are really boring. Why would I do undersea cables? Uh, <laughs> thinking, you know, copper cables, telegraph cables, um, until I realized that they carried almost all of our Internet traffic. And given that I had been in film studies, English, communication, involved in the, all of these disciplines that are about, uh, you know, transmitting content around the world, the fact that nobody seemed to really know that most of this content was transmitted by undersea cables um, meant that this, you know, very quickly became the dissertation project as a whole. So the book um, that we're talking about follows directly from what you've just been saying, right? It looks very carefully, very thoughtfully, and very imaginatively at the geography of undersea cable networks, and it pays special attention 
to, and we'll talk about this at much more length in the hour to come, the materiality of the infrastructure of these networks and its relationship to histories and cultures of the Pacific. So the book revises through a study of undersea cable networks what we think we know or what um, the, the language in which a lot of people talk about the infrastructure of these global networks. And so there are a number of ways that that happens. I'll just very briefly mention some of them now just to lay the groundwork for listeners. Um, you talk about these not as wireless but wired, not as rhizomatic and distributed, but instead as centralized or semi-centralized, not as deterritorialized, but instead as what you call territorially entrenched, not as resilient, but instead as precarious and vulnerable, and not as urban, but instead as rural and aquatic. So there are lots of ways in which this really changes um, how I think a lot of people are going to understand what it is to think about and to think with cables, undersea cables, and global networks that involve them. Now, you've said already a little bit about how you came to this topic, but there's also, in addition to this topic, a kind of uh, methodology that you describe at the beginning of the book to describe what you're doing here, and that's the methodology of network archaeology. So can you tell us a little bit about that as a methodology and the reasons why network archaeology was a particularly productive way for you to engage this project? Um, so then the framing of network archaeology came a little bit later in the project. From the beginning of the dissertation, I was really interested in Okay, so how is it that these, uh, you know, flows of signal traffic uh, expanding around the world uh, on undersea cable systems are shaped by the environments that they transect, uh, the cultural environments, the social histories, the technological histories, and the movements of actors who um, are located around the cable route. And so I was trying to find a way, um, and this part in part came out of that framing of the project is a, a project of media underwater or looking at media underwater. Um, you know, how is it that something, these flows move through an already aquatic environment or an already fluid environment um, and are shaped by those circulations? Um, when I was at, my first job was at Miami University. And when I was there, I did uh, a conference on network archaeology, uh, which then uh, Alan Liu, who was at UC Santa Barbara, had been using the term uh, to describe, you know, the uses of networks, uh, the historical configurations of networks, basically. And I was also inspired by uh, research in media archaeology, which basically looked back to specific technological or cultural histories, uh, mostly technological, to help inform present knowledge or present research, um, a kind of putting placing of the, the past and present in, uh, in relation to each other to kind of draw out tensions or to inform um, scholarly production. So network archaeology for me seemed like a way to take something uh, that often seems very atemporal, um, the network system or the network graph, um, a series of lines and nodes that are fairly static um, and don't have an obvious historical component, and to think about how these networks are layered into other kinds of technical, social, cultural, mediated systems. Um, so it's a kind of tracking backwards at any given site a set of networks expands through that site or that becomes a node in some networks and not others. 
And so by doing this very like site-specific research, but across um, my frame, my uh, geographic area focus was the Pacific Rim, but across the Pacific Rim uh, helped me to also look at the relationship between, uh, you know, local circulations, regional circulations, and global circulations, um, as well as bringing history into contact with the present and thinking about how these cable systems are really shaped by the historical eras um, of colonial network expansion, of post-war, Cold War, uh, telephone cable expansion, um, as well as things that aren't obviously connected to telecommunications history, such as the history of fishing. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the really wonderful things about the book that's happening, um, and you talk about, uh, in part, uh, a kind of a version of what you just mentioned in terms of an argument for the need to move away from something you call network topology, right? Um, which kind of uh, focuses on the mathematical distribution of nodes and of links instead to an approach of network topography, which instead analyzes cables as they're embedded in these kinds of environments and ecologies. So that's really, really important. And looking at this um, topography is something that becomes really productive, not only in terms of the argument of the book and, and the content of what you're describing, but also in terms of the experience that you're enabling for the reader and the experiencer of the book. So that takes various forms. I mean, one of the forms that that takes is a way that structures your narrative according to a series of wanderings, right? You bring us through and across and into and to and from nodes in these networks in a way that really beautifully recapitulates the content of what you're talking about. But also you enable this kind of wandering and moving to and from nodes by incorporating the book um, into a larger framework that also includes a companion website, This is a really wonderful website. Um, I will link to it on the write-up that goes along with this conversation, and it's www.surfacing.in. So can you talk a little bit about that, the decision to have the book and the website um, be part of a a kind of a network themselves, um, and the, the kind of experience that you're hoping the reader is going to glean from moving to and from these different media? Right. And I would almost say that the book is a companion to the website. Got it. Um, The website is much more, um, what I wanted to do with the website is to create a different way of moving through the material um, that I was gathering as I did research across the Pacific Rim at uh, a variety of different uh, locations um, from the U.S. out through uh, Pacific islands like Hawaii, Guam, and Fiji, which had been hubs for cable systems, um, to centers of telecommunications in Hong Kong or Singapore, um, to remote peripheries um, in Vietnam or, um, you know, in Australia, uh, on the west coast of Australia. How, when moving between these nodes, um, could we or this is the question I was asking, could we synthesize or start to get a sense of the relationality that existed between these different sites? Uh, The book is a narrative. Um, Each chapter is structured according to a specific part of the cable network, uh, cable stations, landing points, uh, the deep ocean, um, really looking at how those geographies, uh, those environments shape 
uh, you know, the, the development of, of cable circulations. Uh, but there were so many connections that exist um, and so much material that I had about these particular places that couldn't be included in, uh, in the book because of the narrative structure and because of the requirement to create an argument, um, which I was trying to do in the kind of sense of a traditional monograph. <laughs> Uh, so surface, what surfacing does, um, and I have to really give credit here to Eric Lawyer, who is a kind of co-author of the project um, and its designer, uh, who's really a true collaborator, as well as Shane Brennan, um, who is a graduate student at NYU. And what the project does is it enables you to basically go to all of the locations that have been cabled, you know, cable hubs in the Pacific Rim over the last uh, 150 years. Every location has a, uh, a node view that you can look at. You can see images, historical images that I gathered from archives, images that I took during field research, as well as a description of how that particular location fits into these global circulations. But it also lets you traverse from the that location along any of the cables that have linked that location to other proximate locations. Right, So there's a level where you can move technically along the network. But also what I've done is tag each of these locations with a series of dynamics or historical instances um, or kind of concepts that make, you know, bring that location into relationship with other places around the Pacific. Right. So, for example, one of the concepts is attacks, right? Like cables have been attacks. Cable stations have been attacked over the course of history. Um, particularly, there was an attack at Guam um, during the telegraph era, as well as at Fanning Island. Um, two locations in the Pacific that were very important cable nodes, um, and those attacks served as a way to disrupt enemy communications um, at critical moments. Um, and so those locations have never been linked to be a cable, right? Um, and so... But there's a very strong historical relationship between them. So in the project, you can move via these concepts uh, between these two, between locations that have kind of uh, similar dynamics that have played out over history. And you can do a kind of large-scale information visualization of all of the themes that have shaped cable history. Um, So it's a way of using digital media, digital art, and playing with uh, Google mapping systems, um, kind of trying to, to invert the way that we approach digital maps today. Mm-hmm. Um, in the interest of creating uh, an environment and an embodied experience, um, a kind of conceptual experience for the user that gives them a real sense of what it is to move across the network, as I did, right? This sort of wandering, um, but also the very deep relationships that structure uh, the development of network infrastructure. Um, It's not something that just gets paved through environments, but it emerges in the environments that it moves through. Mm -hmm. And this actually, I think, um, really wonderfully encapsulates one of the points that you're making in one of the chapters. And we'll get here eventually, but um, in the second chapter of the book, you talk about some um, very popular traditional ways of narrating the history of cables and uh, presenting stories about cable systems and cable networks to um, an audience. And you call these connection narratives. 
and disruption narratives, right? Connection narratives tending to chronologically trace the design and development of the cable as a way to transcend national boundaries and other things. Disruption narratives, which focus on the repair of a cable that's been disconnected, fight against threats to whatever, to global security, to nature, um, et cetera, et cetera, or threats from nature and from terrorism. Instead, that you suggest in this chapter, this is chapter two that I'm just kind of marking for listeners um, because I think it's related to what you were just talking about. Instead, you're proposing alternate modes of narrating um, cables and cable systems, and you call these nodal narratives and transmission narratives. And I think what you just described in terms of the experience of narrating through the use of the website, right, is very much um, an embodiment of the kind of narrativization that focuses on nodes and that allows the experiencer an ex- uh, to kind of embody this transmission that you were writing about in the second chapter. So again, it's a way that I think the project's material manifestation really recapitulates um, the argument of the book in a really beautiful way. But before we get to chapter two, the first chapter, um, that not only sets out this argument um, for a move from topology to topography that I mentioned before, but that also lays out as a foundation a broad overview of three major eras of cable development. And these are three eras that we're going to follow for the rest of the book, or at least they're touchstones for what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Now, this um, in each case, this narrative focuses on three themes, security, insulation, and interconnection. Now, we could spend the rest of the hour just (laughs) talking about this chapter. I'm not going to do that. I'll just briefly um, name the three eras and then um, kind of open it up and ask you to talk about it. So the first era is from the 1850s to the 1950s. This looks at the copper telegraph cable's relationship to colonization. And you talk here a lot about the ways that cable stations were supported by existing colonial infrastructures and the way that the ocean was a kind of layer of insulation. The second era extends from the 1950s to the 1980s, and we hear, um, here we see the kind of laying of coaxial telephone cables in the Cold War. And you talk about the ways that the culture of the Cold War impacted decisions about the topography of cable networks, including a kind of strategic decentralization. Then um, the third stage is from the 1990s on, and here's where we see the emergence of fiber optic cables and a, a trend toward deregulation and privatization. And all of these changes um, change the, in a sense, right, in a way, change the kind of geography of the cable network, including cable landings. Now, in each of these cases, security and concerns with security have been a key feature of determining cable systems and cable routes. All of these systems have been constructed to be secure in some way. And you talk in this chapter about the consequences of this, right? And here's where I want to kind of open this up and hit the ball back to you. The consequences of cable companies pursuing the most secure routes include a solidification of the network in kind of determined ways and along relatively few lines. And there are consequences that come out of this. Because so much of the book is about, on some level, the ways that understanding the history and topography of cable networks can help us understand the constraints um, that we're in and perhaps how to move forward, um, this is perhaps a good chance to, uh, to touch on that. So can you talk about the consequences of this concern with security, um, kind of for, for the kind of foundation that's laid for what happens next? 
So with security, um, and this is in the book, you know, I really mean a, a broad sense of the term, um, not just, uh, you know, uh, programs of, of national security, right. but the need to always insulate or protect a cable route um, from all kinds of dangers. And even though this is sort of a well, this is a chapter that in part uh, traverses, um, you know, scholarship that is well covered um, or has long been done on telecommunications history. What I hope to do here is is to draw out uh, the importance of defining that route um, and setting up these geographies, and that because of the need for security and for insulation, which is always both a physical process um, and a uh, has a kind of imaginative uh, dimension, and that it reflects whatever the fears are of the contemporary moment. So the perce- perceptions of, um, you know, uh, nuclear attack during the Cold War era set the stage for what would be, uh, you know, the development of a secure network during that era. And then today, a lot of the cable stations still exist in locations that were determined during the Cold War, right? So as a result, those histories of security and the need to secure the network are residual in contemporary formations. Um, And that the cable industry, given that it's fairly conservative and they err towards the tried and true, in part because they are so, these systems are so expensive um, and you don't need very many of them. And so they represent a really serious kind of long-term investment. They tend not to develop new routes unless they absolutely have to. So as a result, we have a lot of systems today that basically funnel through the same points that were established 150, even 20 years ago. Um, and that has led to a situation where uh, there are a lot of single points of failure. Um, and if not single points of failure, at least vulnerable locations. Uh, we don't have, you know a diverse mesh network, uh, at least in terms of the cable systems themselves, where, you know, each point connects to many other points. um, And there are multiple routes between, uh, you know, any two points. Certainly there are multiple routes, but in terms of the cable systems that you have to traverse in those multiple routes, they're often fairly limited. And this is something that the undersea cable industry is actually fairly concerned with, um, You know, people worry uh, that because of the kind of scarcity of routes or the concentration of routes, uh, that there is the potential for a kind of uh, a large disruption that would shut off Internet traffic. And that this has happened a number of times before. And there have been recent moves to try to diversify the network. Um, And in the book, one of the projects that I talk about is Arctic Fiber. Um, And this is a cable system that's designed to go between uh, the UK and Japan uh, via the Arctic Ocean. And this is a completely untested route. And it's very difficult for people who develop these kinds of routes to get funding right? They have to surmount a whole bunch of obstacles, particularly those in terms of producing a secure network, um, or at least even in terms of the the imagination of funders, the the conception or the belief that that network will be secure. So if Arctic fiber ends up going into the ocean, it may or may not have a disruption in the way that any other cable may or may not have a disruption. 
but people's, you know, customers' willingness to buy capacity on that system uh, or to fund that system depends on that belief in its security, uh, that it will continue to funnel signal traffic irrespective of environmental or social conditions. So as we move from this, um, we move into a discussion of the chapter that we briefly talked about a little bit earlier. And this is a chapter that looks at the ways that cables are portrayed in popular media, including but not limited to fiction and film. And we've already talked a little bit about this in terms of critiques of these connection narratives and disruptive disruption narratives. And both of these, as you um, discuss in this chapter, are problematic in part because they relate the story of the cable only when it's out of service, right? Or um, in other ways, neglect the immense amount of labor and upkeep that are needed to keep cable systems working. So the chapter proposes, as I mentioned briefly before, two alternative narrative modes that emphasize the materiality of cable systems. And this emphasis on materiality is such an important um, point and touchstone for the book. And these are what you call nodal narratives and transmission narratives. Now, you, um, you describe a lot of examples here. So I think maybe um, what I'll do is just ask you to talk a little about, about this. For you, what are nodal narratives and transmission narratives? And do you have a kind of favorite example of a kind of narrative um, of cables that uh, embodies one of these approaches? So one of the things that I would mention for this is that this, um, even though it's a chapter that's basically um, a bunch of narrative and textual analysis of existing representations of cable systems, the backdrop and the kind of question that structures this analysis is much bigger and I think uh, really pertinent today. Uh, People in the industry um, and academia users uh, really don't have a sense of what cable systems are, what they do, um, and and their importance to uh, you know everyday internet use all around the world. And I think that this kind of you know uh, a literacy about infrastructures is important. Um, and so when I was developing this chapter, you know, it, there's no not a shortage of representations of undersea cable systems. They just all tend to fall into these two note, modes. And so when people are developing, okay, the latest uh, kind of initiative or, um, you know, project to be able to make cables visible to policymakers, to users, and so on, they tend to still fall into these nodes, right? So, you know, someone might be building a new cable project or a new cable, and they might develop a film about it, or they might develop a blog about it, which will last for the duration of when they are putting the cable in the water um, and building the cable. But as soon as the cable is switched on, there's kind of a lack of things to say about it. Um, Or at least if you read these narratives, that's what you would think. Um, And so I thought that what I realized is that we need a new set of ways of knowing uh, cable systems, uh, new set of narratives, new set of images that really give us a sense of uh, how they continue to operate or how they affect particular locations or to give just to give a sense of the materiality of the system rather than a narrative that is structured uh, whereby the cable system is immaterial and uh, kind of freely transmits information and you don't really have to think about it until the point where it breaks or when you have to build a new one. So I thought we needed a new set of knowledges 
to be able to actually help us to understand and to see cable systems as material infrastructures that support all of our signal traffic um, every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, or not all of it, but at least across the oceans. And so the nodal narratives and the transmission narratives uh, were two ways that I saw this being done um, already in other people's work. And one of the, my favorite examples is uh, a very well-known one, which is a Neil Stevenson article in Wired magazine mm-hmm. um, called Mother Earth Motherboard. Uh, and I write pretty extensively about the essay or that article in, uh, in the book. And really what struck me about it is that it's a kind of cable tourism. Um, and you can trace this back to their old ship, lo- ship logs where people are taking a trip on a cable ship and they're kind of just doing this narration of the environments and, uh, you know, the native peoples that they're, they're meeting as they go along. But what sticks about these narratives, even though they're problematic in a lot of ways, um, especially in terms of the relationship they depict um, of, uh, you know, the, the cable layers between the cable layers and the, the peoples who are connected or who are supporting the system or whose, you know, environment uh, they're moving through. Um, what I think is still productive about them is that they really give you a sense of the labor, uh, the intense amount of work, and the ways that these systems will continue to be in this place and shape it uh, for the life of the cable and even beyond. Um, and that was the kind of so that was the kind of combination of a nodal narrative where a nodal narrative is something where you're you're in one place and you're looking at how that place transforms as it is connected to different net, networks over time. And a transmission narrative is one where usually you're following a network from point to point to point to point, or you're following a kind of vector across the network. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two structures, I think, give a, a better sense of how the network operates, uh, how it shapes the environments it moves through, um, and really the kind of m- the materiality of that system. Thank you so much. And, and the chapter also emphasizes the ways, um, and I just mentioned this for listeners, who are particularly interested in the aspects of power and the histories of power that intersect this story and that ground this story, the chapter looks at the ways that the narrative modes that you are moving away from um, kind of uh, recapitulate a certain kind of or reproduce a kind of ideological power um, that these two narrative modes you're advocating really uh, take us away from or allow us to break up a little bit. So as we move into the next chapter, we move into a really detailed and really wonderful history of the cable station. Now, the cable station is what you call a gateway to the network, a site of connection between national and international systems, a site that connects with local publics, and a zone, in your words, where the border between system and environment is contested. Now, there's a lot going on here, and I'm just going to sort of briefly um, indicate one of the things going on that's really interesting. Okay, You take us through these three stages that um, we talked about before, right? the colonial cable station, the Cold War, and the fiber optic era. And in each of these cases, what we see is a material change um, in the kind of the body that is the focus of network operations, from the body of the cable worker, in the case of the colonial cable station, to the body of the station itself, the kind of built architecture of the station in the Cold War, 
to a body of the kind of circulation of information um, and a way to regulate that that is more the focus of the fiber optic era. Now, there's a ton of really fascinating stuff that's going on in all of the stages of this description. And so listeners, I hope will, you know, after this, um, have a chance to get their hands on the book and read all these details. But in the meantime, I'd just like to ask you um, what you think is most interesting and important about this material transformation for you. What's one of the most, yeah, like interesting, exciting, important aspects of this transformation that we need to understand in order to understand the larger um, argument that you're making in this part of the book? Uh, that's a tough one. Let's see. Um, <laughs> so basically, this is a way of asking for yeah. you, like, what's most important here? Well, what's most important, I think, in this chapter is understanding that uh, across these different eras of, of cabling, um, and I visit a lot of different cable stations, uh, both from the colonial era and today and read cable station magazines to really get a sense of what cable work was like, what these environments were like, and so on. But I think across this period, you know, the boundaries between what is part of the cable network, what is a critical part of the cable network, um, and what is not, shifts, right? So during the colonial era, the body of the cable man and almost always was a cable man, uh, was really a critical part of the signal uh, transmissions route because he would literally read one set of uh, incoming signals and then retransmit it. Um, this is not to say that maintenance still isn't critical, and that's one of the things that I track here um, is the this continuing importance of, of maintenance and labor. But that during this period... Uh, that because his body was part of that route, um, it was really important to make sure that his performance, his embodied performance, continued to accord to the kind of rules, regulations, ideology of the colonial cable system, right? So there are all these cable magazines that really tried to shape um, the cable man's conception to get him to fall in line with the kind of correct performance um, and the correct mode of network operations, if you will, Uh, because there were all sorts of people who were in the cable stations, right? Like the walls weren't firm in any sense. They were porous. Uh, People would come in for tours. You had a lot of local people like working in the cable station as, as servants or um, in many other respects. Uh, But it was really important that the cable man, didn't, according to the kind of company uh, and to the people who are managing the network, didn't succumb to these external influences. You really see the kind of anxiety of um, uh, of the, the colony at that point and, and uh, the British in particular about what would happen to these men as they went off into uh, various frontiers of empire. And so uh, this kind of what they needed was both uh, a kind of mode of insulation, right, to kind of protect and differentiate these men from the people on the outside, right, in order to ensure that correct bodily performance. But also, at the same time, they really needed to interconnect these men with that environment, right? And so this is the tension that I try to trace throughout the book between insulation, a need to draw a kind of definite boundary between what is the transmissions route, what is the network, and what is its environment, and how do we shield that? 
and then the need to interconnect with that environment, um, which in a sense of, you know, if you look at like electrical engineering or electrical networks, grounding is the process whereby, you know, basically power has to feed out from, you know, kind of a circuit, you know, a signal moves across a circuit to another point, but it needs to return via a ground, right? There has to be a ground to that system. And for undersea networks, the ground technically is actually the ocean itself. So all of those transmissions that go across the ocean uh, then get uh, kind of, you know, released back to the ocean via this ocean ground bed. But this also happened culturally and socially um, so that they kind of, in some ways, tried to demarcate the boundary between the cable man and uh, people who are not cable men, but then also went through a lot of effort to interconnect them in certain ways that were not deemed harmful to the network. And basically, in the chapter, what I think is important is that as you move through these historical eras, um, even though they're not really definite, uh, you know, there's not a, a date when everything changes, they kind of meld into one another, you get an increasing focus on the architecture of the building during the Cold War era, where that becomes the kind of demarcating uh, structure uh, that differentiates the network from its environment rather than the performance or regulation of the performance of the cable man to today when it's really, you know, you walk into these cable stations and they're concerned about like the, the, the bookshelf of information about keystrokes and logins um, and network operations getting out. And the people who have worked in the cable industry for a long time, who have now become consultants, are still sort of considered part of the network, even though they may or may not hold a job at a cable company at any given time because of their intense knowledge of the system, because of their ability to step in and consult uh, and shape the way the system develops, Mm -hmm. right? So this reconfiguration of the boundary of the network, both kind of some of these carry over through historical periods, Um, you know, so that sense of a kind of cable community, which was cultivated during the colonial era in order to kind of ensure the bodily performance, the correct standardized bodily performance of these men now is incredibly important to keeping the network operational today. Mm -hmm. Um, even though it's talked about in terms of the circulation of information or knowledge and so on. So it's that sort of tension between needing to interconnect with one's environment, but also, to insulate from it that has, because of all of those strategies of interconnection and insulation that the cable companies have embarked on over the years that get solidified in these routes, those uh, shape the contemporary system of internet traffic um, in really substantial ways and are incredibly different, difficult to shift. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And so this is um, something that I think follows really nicely into the next chapter and into the next part of the book. Chapter four, as we move from chapter three to chapter four, we move to um, a really careful and close look at um, not the cable station, but the cable landing. Now, cable landing is where undersea cables emerge from the very deep ocean and move through beaches, um, shorelines, local communities before connecting with cable stations. Now, these stations are public spaces that can't be walled off, and as a result, as you describe it here, they become pressure points where local actors can, as you put it, induce turbulence 
in the system. And this turbulence has kind of disproportionate effects across the network. Now, you take us into three sites and three nodal narratives for talking about what's happening here in this chapter. Um, and I think it's also a good point for us to move into a node here and perhaps talk a little bit more about a, a local context. Um, and that this happens throughout the book, but um, this is really emphasized um, in these later chapters. So these three sites include California, um, and you describe in California a circumstance in which conflicts between telecommunications companies um, and disruptions by environmentalists are creating a certain kind of pressure. You bring us into New Zealand, where that pressure and those disruptions are instead an issue of fishermen and boats dropping anchor and cutting cables. And you also take us into a really fascinating case in Hawaii. Now, here you take us into a, a circumstance of disruptions thanks to a particular road. This is the Farrington Highway, and you bring us into your experiences on this highway as a way of bringing us into this case. So can you talk a little bit about that, um, the kind of Hawaii here as a node for understanding the ways that cable landings are kind of pressure points and the ramifications they have throughout the system? Um, so in Hawaii, and this was one of the first sites that I visited when I was doing my research, uh, and it was incredibly evocative, uh, in part because so many of the themes of the book crystallized there um, and the ways that uh, local environments and global networks are co-constitutive uh, really came to the fore. And I began the book with a, uh, an anecdote about what happened when I was tracking one of these cable landings. Um, and I discovered that Right above the cable landing uh, was, you know, a series of belongings, uh, basically the inhabitation of, of one of the many houseless people who live on the West Shore of Hawaii, where many of these cables also land. And as I spent time there, I realized that the um, that set of uh, local histories of displacement from of Native Hawaiians from the hills by the military down onto the beaches, uh, the economic transitions uh, that had made it uh, very difficult for them to um, be able to kind of reclaim that uh, territory or to be able to have any kind of power in this space, um, at least uh, apparently or overtly, um, when you kind of travel through that location, were really intertwined with the history of cable laying, right? Um, and these have become, you know, there are three stations on the West Shore, uh, not including one that never received a cable. Um, but these stations have been, uh, you know, a hub for you know, network traffic since the Cold War era. Uh, but then it's increasingly difficult to land on Hawaii's West Shore. And in fact, all, a lot of the cables recently have been landing on the Big Island, precisely because this is a pressure point. Um, it's really difficult to cross the road here. Um, when you cross the road, uh, you disrupt traffic, um, you disrupt the beach, right? And the beach is literally where people live. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Because of the way that U.S. law works, um, it actually grants a lot of power to uh, people on the local level, the state level, to be able to contest, you know, various infrastructural projects. 
this is not true in Australia. When I talked to someone who was building a network in Australia, he said, oh, well, we just, you know, basically pave our way. You know, we lay the cable and then we patch things up on the way back. Uh, we try to let people know what we're doing because we don't want to create bad will. But we don't have to ask them. Um, in the U.S., you have to apply for all sorts of permits, right? And uh, these kind of permitting processes and the negotiations on the local level can get very kind of complex um, and tricky. And so in Hawaii, what they do now in a lot of, of along the West Shore is if they want to lay a cable, they either have to string it through an existing conduit, which is no big deal, but these conduits are pretty much full. Um, or if they want to lay a new cable, they would have to do something called horizontal directional drilling, which is mean that they basically drill down and over um, underneath the ground out to the ocean. Um, so that way they don't disrupt the traffic above. Uh, but reportedly, I think this costs like, you know, something like $100,000 more by one cable man's um, estimate. Uh, but I think it depends. Uh, but it's definitely more expensive than simply trenching a beach. Um, and so for this reason, among others, uh, cables have moved to the Big Island in the same way that uh, because it's so difficult to land in California, many cables have gone to Oregon. Right. So you see these sorts of displacements away from places that are pressure points um, where people, whether it's fishermen or the people who live on the West Shore, actually have some degree of power to be able to uh, contest or at least complicate uh, the laying of a cable system. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, so and it's a really. I think a very powerful chapter in doing all the things that you just said and also in helping readers, I think, reconceptualize some basic aspects of geography that we might take for granted. I mean, I came away from this chapter realizing that I didn't know what a road was in the same way anymore and in a very productive way, right? Even just this very simple description of the highway and the ways that traveling along this highway um, is, is very different for different people, right? You mentioned that when you drove along the highway, it would take five hours, and the person you were traveling with said it took 10 hours, and part of that is due to the experience of stopping or not, you know, pulling off the beach or not. Sort of what a highway is as a space and as a place can be very different for different people. And so even at that basic level of what am I looking at when I look at, what am I experiencing when I experience a road, um, it, it's very transformative here. So thank you for that, um, because I think there's a lot of different kinds of work that this part of the book does in really, really productive ways. So as we move to the next chapter, we move to a chapter that we'll only be able to talk about very briefly, but again, we could talk about this for another hour. And this is a chapter that looks at Pacific Islands as network nodes. So again, a focus on nodes. Now, while existing representations of islands and networks tend to make us think of them as two separate entities, right? In fact, what you're showing in this chapter is that islands are core components of cable systems, right? And you focus here on three islands and introduce a fourth um, setting that are critical to traffic across the Pacific. Now, these are critical in different ways, and I'll just very briefly mention this. Um, you bring us into Guam, um, and this case in various ways challenges our conception of islands as isolated, you bring us into Fiji, which challenges our conceptions of networks as simply connective. You also bring us into Yap, um, and this is an uncabled island that's importantly different from Guam and Fiji. 
But finally, and this is where I'd like to kind of open things up and ask you to talk about it a little bit, you bring us into the really fascinating case of Tahiti's first undersea cable, Hanatua, um, which is a very, again, very different. So can you talk a little bit about Tahiti? Um, For you, what's important about this Honatua that might help us understand the broader arguments that you're making in this chapter about this phenomenon of islands and islanding? Right, so Hanatua is uh, Tahiti's first undersea cable. They've never had an undersea cable before. Uh, Guam, uh, Yap, Hawaii, uh, Fiji, all of these islands have had undersea cables, um, at least during the colonial era. But Tahiti's system is made possible, was made possible in part by French government funding. Um, So you see here how these sorts of digital initiatives are, you know, uh, reallocating funding in ways that uh, expand infrastructure to places that have never had them before, or at least cable infrastructure. Um, And this is a transition that you can see in a lot of places around the world. One of the things that I think is most interesting about the Tahitian case is that uh, the cable doesn't use that much, you know, the people don't use that much capacity on this cable. So you might ask, like, okay, you might think, why, you know, uh, why spend so much money, as in the case of the Arctic fiber system, which is going to link northern communities in Alaska and Canada, why spend so much money when people aren't going to use that much of the potential capacity of the system? Um, And yet, Tahiti has been talking about a second cable for some time. Right now, they're in the process of discussing a really innovative cable route, which may or may not come to be, uh, but similarly would take a path that has never been taken before. And this would link to South America on one side and to China on another side, (laughs) right? So you think this capacity in itself is not necessary for... Tahitians to and you know use the internet. Um, all the Netflix watching is not going to change. Is not going to fill up that cable. Um, but what they're thinking about doing uh, potentially is is leveraging the existing cable and the capacity on that cable to make Tahiti a hub, right? To make it a node, a place where they triangulate uh, a northern route to the U.S. and to the hub of Hawaii with. Uh, routes to China and to South America, in doing so to kind of triangulate China's interest in investing in South America and Tahiti. Um, And triangulation is something that I formulate here as an attempt to kind of like, uh, to establish a third point to what would be a kind of flow between two points. So that way, to kind of feed off some of that flow, right? So by making themselves a stopping point or a hub, um, they would have access to this capacity, um, even if only to leverage that capacity as they're doing with Hanatua against other networks, mm-hmm. right? So you see some of the workings of our kind of, uh, you know, contemporary mode of capitalism here, mm-hmm. right? In the way that you have uh, certain debts, um, certain capacities being leveraged to produce other kinds of capacities. But in the context of digital systems, they also see it as, uh, something that would profoundly shape um, local economies, techno- technological development, and so on. Um, you know, perhaps they would set up schools here for training, or since they have redundant networks, they envision that this could be a place, a kind of meeting point um, 
for people in the tech industries. Whether or not this comes to pass, um, I think, you know, we will see. Uh, but what's important is that that you have this imagination that is of, of the island as a hub. Uh, and the islands, many of these islands have long been hubs um, for different kinds of flows, even if not cable flows. And the kind of flows that go through Guam uh, have been leveraged for other kinds of, you know, development of other kinds of capacities on other kinds of networks. Um, and this layering of networks um, that I track through a kind of network archaeology is really apparent um, in the case of many of these Pacific islands. This is also an example of um, the importance of the kind of thing that you recently mentioned um, in our conversation. This is this tension between insulation and interconnection, right? In each of the cases, in each of the island cases that you're talking about in this chapter, Guam, Fiji, Yap, um, Tahiti, cables here are benefiting from the insulation of the island as islands become sites of interconnection. So again, we have this germinal tension between insulation and interconnection that so much motivates um, so much of the story that's happening here. Now, as we move to the sixth chapter, this is the last body chapter. We move, this is one of my favorite chapters. Um, and we move to a study of the interconnections between undersea cables and scientific knowledge of the ocean. Now, you, t- you bring us here um, through the history of the relationship between early marine science and cable networks from the early stages where cable companies that were designing cable routes and sort of having to map the ocean floor um, as a result of that are forging ongoing connections with navies, with scientists. This is happening early on um, after World War II interactions between marine science and cable networks are increasingly um, sort of, uh, they're, they're still happening, right? They're still going, and they're largely being shaped by U.S. militarization of the seafloor. Now, you take us through stages where cables start taking on a new function, right? They, become, they begin to be used to monitor the ocean floor as a kind of soundscape. And the consequences of this, um, the ongoing consequences of this include among other things, the construction of cable-linked ocean observatories. And I have to ask you to talk about this because I'm talking to you from Vancouver, um, and being someone who lives in BC, this is a case study in this chapter. You bring us into the Bamfield Marine Sciences Center and Vancouver and the Neptune station that's off the coast of BC. So can you talk a little bit about this? What are some of the ways for you that are particularly interesting about the ways that these cable networks are generating approaches to marine science and scientific knowledge of the ocean floor. So the, the ways that cables are seen as transforming marine science are very similar to the ways that they're often seen as uh, transforming digital culture, culture, uh, media culture more generally. Um, so, the, the kind of general pitch for a, an ocean observatory, which is constituted by uh, an array of different instruments at the end of cables that are then linked back to uh, a hub on land uh, where scientists can monitor um, what's going on on the seafloor or above, is that this allows you access to the ocean 24-7 in real time, right? So instead of having to get on a boat and make periodic trips out to the ocean, particular points, lower, you know, drop-off buoys or lower-down instruments. 
to gauge temperature. Uh, this enables you to uh, construct a kind of continuous reading um, of certain phenomena uh, or, um, you know, uh, environmental factors. And what that does in, in terms of science uh, is a number of things. Well, it allows uh, scientists to construct uh, an understanding of, of the phenomena that they're looking at in uh, much more kind of detail, right? So this is a, a big data project where you have um, a lot more kind of fine-grained uh, information that's coming in, but at a quicker temporality. And so sometimes if you were going out to the ocean to collect, say, temperature reading or uh, kind of collect sediment, uh, and you did it, you know, uh, every six months, if something happened in between those six months, you wouldn't necessarily know what happened. Um, you wouldn't understand whether or not that was, uh, you know, you wouldn't understand what kind of temporality it had um, compared to if you're reading for, uh, you know, changes uh, every second. So that's one way that it transforms that kind of uh, marine science production. Another is that uh, it doesn't, it no longer requires these trips out to the ocean by the scientists themselves in the same way, right? They still have to deliver the instruments, um, but they can sit at home, you know, the pitch is also that they can sit at home in their offices um, or in their offices and they can, you know, do the work from their desktop, which is also something that kind of mirrors digital culture more generally. But as a trade-off, then they require or depend on the maintenance capacities and the boats and the labor of the people who operate the networks um, in a different way, right? So if your instrument breaks, uh, you have to wait until there's a scheduled maintenance trip to fix it, right? So it changes not only the kind of research that can be done, which uh, they, you know, the people I've talked to say is more interdisciplinary, um, gets, they can do uh, different, they can analyze temporality in a different way and so on, but it also changes the relationships between the people who are building these technologies and putting them in the ocean and operating the network and the scientists themselves. Mm-hmm. It actually, in, in the way that you're describing it, it really interestingly um, compares with the example of scientists who are operating Mars rovers remotely. I mean, it sounds like a, it might sound like a weird comparison, but I was just talking to somebody who wrote a book about um, the Mars rover missions and the ways that the interdisciplinary links that form between and among and the connections that form between and among different scientific and engineering communities around the shared resource for collecting data and collecting information that is a Mars rover. Um, It's really very interestingly comparable to the kinds of phenomena that you're talking about, even though we're talking about Mars versus um, the deep ocean. So it's really, really interesting stuff. And shout out to Vancouver and BC. So (laughs) listeners who are local um, we'll have a lot of um, interesting stuff that they'll find, I think, about this particular node in this particular locality um, in Chapter 6. So, Nicole, there's a, we're now almost at the end of our hour, and there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about. We could easily talk for another three, four hours probably. There's so much in the book we haven't had a chance to talk about, including a conclusion that I'll just 
mention for listeners um, the conclusion here called surfacing not only reminds us where we've been, sort of maps out the travels that we've taken in the book, but also talks about some of the most important consequences of understanding cable systems in the way that you're arguing here. And it includes the consequences of understanding the materiality of what we tend to think of as clouds or wireless networks and appreciating the ecological dimension of media. Um, And I just want to emphasize that because that's really, really important here. Okay, Nicole, so there's obviously, right, a ton of things we haven't gotten to. Is there anything in particular that we haven't talked about but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers of the book or experiencers of the website? Um, So I think what I would say is uh, the last thing I would want to mention is that the the website, uh, which I hope people will visit, really is meant to be, uh, can be seen apart from the book. Um, but also if you're reading the online version of the book, uh, the Kindle version, you can click out when you're reading, you know, say, say we're having this conversation and, you know, I mention a particular concept that's in the book. Um, when you come across that concept in the book, instead of, you know, just moving past it in the argument, you can also click on it and literally it will bring you, it'll link you out to that site. Um, That's awesome. So, you know, if we're reading about Hawaii and, you know, you don't want to move on past Hawaii, then what you can do is just click on any of the locations which are highlighted, linked in that book that bring you directly to that site. Um, And so it's meant as a way, like there are so many stories I feel like I could tell. I didn't get, you know, a chance to talk at all about, you know, cable ships. Um, You know, that was a, a big part of uh, the research that I didn't get to put in the book because there wasn't really room. Um, But all of these things have, there's vastly kind of more information on that site um, that is intended to be navigated in this way that, you know, I talked about as a kind of nodal narrative or transmissions narrative. Um, So I would just uh, say that the, the links there that the book and the site, you know, it's my hope that, they would be read uh, not, it wouldn't be read just not just as a companion, but as something that could, that uh, is say, uh, you know, uh, stands on itself as a certain kind of display of the information here, kind of remixed for a digital mapping format um, that embodies the kind of thing that I'm trying to argue for. Uh, which is a movement through these landscapes um, that isn't solely about kind of condensing them down for the point of making an argument, but is about kind of exploring them and the way that they inform the network. Um, And I hope that people will get that out of the book as well. So all of this makes me really, really excited, not just about this project, right? And, and if I had awards to give out, I would be giving you an award, the <laughs> New Books in SDS Award. So it's an incredible, incredible project for all the reasons that um, we've talked about in terms of um, curating a kind of experience or enabling a kind of experience that's very much um, in, an embodiment of what you're talking about here. And also because it's a really fascinating story. But what's next for you? I now want to read everything or experience and read everything else that you produce from from here on. So what's currently inspiring you and what are you working on now? Well, I'm still doing 
uh, research on network infrastructure, including internet exchanges, operation centers, uh, the other aspects of internet infrastructure. Uh, but the next project that I've been developing and starting to write essays about um, is on heat and temperature. Mm. Um, when I was visiting a lot of these cable stations, one of the things that became really apparent was the intense need for air conditioning, which has now been sort of noted um, more broadly in people who are studying technological culture. Uh, but the the ways that heat and transitions in heat and the management of heat uh, shape emergences in technology, uh, shape infrastructures, um, the way that heat itself is a sort of medium for communication, a kind of affective uh, way of um, shaping bodily performance, um, as well as, you know, uh, heat is uh, it's a kind of material substrate um, that needs to be um, I guess, oriented and, uh, and circulated. Um, so it's sort of an extension of the cable project, uh, but more attuned to those sorts of affective or bodily dimensions, tying that together with technological culture. So that's amazing. I can't wait to read that as well. The so best of luck with that. Um, and thank you so much, Nicole, for taking time to talk with me about the project. It's really been fabulous and congratulations on an amazing work. Thank you so much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.